Let's open our Bibles tonight to Luke chapter 7, and we're going to dive right into verse 11 through 16. Luke 7, verse 11. Now it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nan, and many of his disciples went with him and a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother. She was a widow, and a large crowd from the city was with her. Now, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her um, and said to her, do not weep. And then he came and he touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And he who was dead sat up and began to speak. And he presented him to his mother. And then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. Luke is the only gospel that records this story of this young man. Um, Jesus did it for the sake of the mother. He had compassion on her. This is all she had was his son. And um, she was a widow. There are only three cases in the gospels where Jesus raises people from the dead. And there's similarities. All three, he speaks directly to the dead person. And I'm going to just touch on them because there's only three. Turn over to a couple pages to chapter 8, verse 49. And we have Jairus' daughter is raised. And I'm just going to read it and let it speak for itself. While he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house saying to him, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher. But when Jesus heard it, he answered him saying, do not be afraid, only believe, and she will be made well. And when he came to the house, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, and John, and the father and mother of the girl. Now all wept and mourned for her, but he said, do not weep, she's not dead, she's sleeping. And they laughed him to scorn, knowing that she was dead. But he put them all out but, and took her by the hand, saying, Little girl, arise. Then her spirit returned, and she arose immediately. And he commanded that she be given something to eat. And her parents were astonished, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. So we have a young girl. We have a young man. If you turn over to John chapter 11... Look at verse 41 through 44. Lazarus has been uh, in the tomb now for four full days. And it's, it's interesting to me that um, he sort of chides, chides them. Um, if you go back to verse 38, he's been talking about the resurrection. Verse 35 is... Um, the only other place in the New Testament twice where Jesus wept. 
And the Jews said, see how much he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? And then Jesus came groaning in himself, and he came to the tomb. I don't know why he was groaning. He was groaning maybe because he had just got done telling them he was the resurrection and the life, and if anybody believed in him, um, uh, they would, be, they would uh, never die. Do you believe this? And he was challenging Martha and Mary. So why is he groaning within himself? Was it their lack of faith? Um, or was it that um, they were mourning and he was simply mourning with them? I don't know. I don't have the answer to that one. But it was a cave and a stone laid against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of him, said who was to him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there's a stench for he's been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe you would see the glory of God? Now this sort of leans back towards his groaning for their not believing what he said, his words. All right, verse 41. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Now, he's praying this prayer loud, but he doesn't have to. The next verse, it explains to us, I know that you always hear me, but because of the people that are standing around, they're hearing and seeing. They're seeing Jesus looking up, and then they're hearing him pray out loud that they may believe that you sent me. Now, when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth, and Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. All three of these cases, let's go back to Luke 7. The widow's son is raised, he will die again. Jairus' daughter um, died, and she's died again. Lazarus died, came back to life, and he had to die again. Um, the others who were raised from the dead, um, Turn with me to Matthew 27, and we're going to, this is sort of, um, I'm going to take a little time because this Sunday is Resurrection Sunday, and I want to spend a little time talking about what happens to a person when they die, and the importance of the resurrection. In Corinthians, they got into an argument about uh, the resurrection actually existing. Uh, we went online today um, to see what is the percentage, because I heard that uh, more than half of the people in Britain do not, that claim to be Christians do not believe in the resurrection. They confess Christianity, but they deny the resurrection. So it was the numbers that we could verify were 46%, but I heard it's been even higher than that. Um, that's for Sunday, but in Matthew 27, there were other who, who were raised from the dead. But we read, um, 
And let me quote this verse here if you're taking notes. First Corinthians 15, verse 20. It says, Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep and came back with a resurrected body. These three that we mentioned here, when they died, they had to die again. Now we read in um, Corinthians, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So when a person dies now, um, you're instantly translated to be with the presence in the the Lord. Matter of fact, we sang it in one of Bruce Carroll's songs tonight, I want to see you. I want to see you face to face. And that moment when that happens. But down this little rabbit trail, if you're in Matthew 27, let me draw your attention to verse 51. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. This is when the Lord died on the cross. The earth quaked, the rocks were split. And then it says, and the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of their graves after his resurrection. If you underline anything here, what's important to see is that there's people who died and now their graves were open and they're actually showing themselves in Jerusalem. Now that's one of the weirdest verses in the Bible to me. And it says, they went into the holy city, it appeared to many, but after his resurrection is important. First Corinthians 15 says, Jesus is the first fruits. What does that mean? Well, he's the first one who died with a natural body and he was the first one to come back with his glorified body. And um, where he could walk through walls and we'll, we'll see that um, on, uh, as we look at that on Friday. But as we ask the question here, were other people ever raised from the dead besides these three? The answer is yes. But it's here, and um, for some reason, the Lord allowed them to go and visit people. I think their bodies looked like they did before. Um, Thomas is the one that doubted. He says, Thomas, don't doubt. Just come over and touch me. See that I am flesh and what? That doesn't say blood. See that I'm flesh and spirit because the, the blood was, was empty. That's a whole different study within itself. Let's go to ask the question, well, who are these saints and where do they come from? Turn with me to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. And we have a little hint of what happens to people when they die, both those who have faith and those who don't. It's the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. All right, in verse 19, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple, fine linen, fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, he was full of sores, who was laid at the gate, desired to be fed with the crumbs which fell down from the the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Um, My grandmother 
tells a story about her mother when she was on her deathbed, that the angels came. And she, you know, unless my grandma is telling me this story, I'm gonna roll my eyes at people who tell stories like that, but it's my grandmother. And she said, the angels came and said, it's, it's time to go. And she actually asked for more time. She asked for a day. Evidently, she had things she wanted to do, and it was granted to her. But here, she's, she's on a biblical basis. Whether or not they're seen, I've been bedside at times, right before a person's died, several times. And um, at that moment, I've watched them see something that I couldn't see. They're definitely looking at something. So the angels came and carried uh, Lazarus to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in his flame. Well, what does this tell us? That you're conscious, aware, you can feel comfort and you can also feel pain. He was in torment emotionally uh, because I think the finality had set in and yet he still wanted to be comforted he said, I am tormented in this flame. And Abraham said, son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, likewise Lazarus, evil things, but now he's comforted and you're tormented. Well, both of them died, but both of them are very, very much alive. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot nor can those from there pass to us. Now it sinks in. He's here for the rest of eternity. Well, he'll be resurrected to stand before the great white throne in judgment someday. But that's still yet future. But until that time, as I give this Bible study tonight, this man that Jesus is talking about here is called the parable of the rich man Lazarus. One of the rules of thumb when it comes to parables, if it has a proper name in it, it's a real story and not a parable. So I think the Lord is giving a, a genuine account of these two men. Then he said in verse 27, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. I wonder if he ever had a burden or a concern for his brothers before this. I think not. I have five brothers that uh, they, they might, we say, witness to them, lest they come to this place of torment. And Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Now if we get to chapter eight tonight, we're gonna go through uh, the parable of the sower and the seed, which is how a person gets saved. Um, And it is by hearing the word of God. And basically that's what Abraham says to him. They, They have the word of God. Let them have the prophets. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one would rise from the dead. So let's go back to the question. Who are these guys that um, came out of their graves? They have a resurrected body. I don't believe... um, 
they came out of the grave, appeared, and then went back to this place called Abraham's bosom. So if you were an Old Testament saint, Hebrews chapter 11, I'm quoting verses 13 through 16. All these Old Testament saints we read about in Hebrews, it says, they all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them from afar off were assured, they embraced them and confessed that they were simply strangers and pilgrims on this earth. Boy, we need to hear that one a lot. This is not home. Good place for an amen. We're pilgrims, we're strangers. And we are simply passing through. For those who say such things declare plainly that they're seeking a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind the country from which they came out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now, they desire a better that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So, we talk about um, Luke. This is the only place where this um, widow's son comes back to life, has to die again. Jairus' daughter died, she had to die again. Lazarus died, he had to die again. When Jesus, um, we'll be talking about this uh, either on Friday or on Sunday, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so the Son of Man um, will be three days and three nights where? In the heart or in the center of the earth. So what was he doing there? If you're taking notes, write down 1 Peter 4 verse 6. It says he preached to those who were, those spirits who were in prison. That'll, that'll, cause your brain to twist a little bit just thinking that through. What was the Lord doing down there for three days? Well, he was setting the captives free. That's Ephesians um, chapter four, where, let's see, I've got that on this page. Ephesians chapter four. Therefore he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity, of captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Ephesians 4, 9, now this he ascended, what does it mean that he first descended into the lower parts of the earth? And he who descended is also the one who ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. So we're told that he was there for three days and on the Sunday, Easter morning, we're gonna celebrate the resurrection. So we have um, this place. I believe there's only one chamber down there now. The place called Abraham's bosom is no longer there. Remember the thief on the cross? Had to change of heart. And he said, Lord, when you enter your kingdom, will you remember me? And he says, today, you're going to be with me in paradise. Now think it through. We know that he's gonna be three days in the heart of the earth, we know that he was bodily seen, resurrected, being taken up, and that he was uh, seen on Easter, um, what we call Easter morning. So Abraham's bosom, another place, or another name that it can be called is paradise. Because that thief was in paradise, he was 
one of the shorter stays. <laughs> he, was, he was only there for three days. Um, Abraham and all the Old Testament saints, they were there waiting. Waiting for what? Waiting for the Lord to come to die because they could not have a resurrected body unless their sins would be permanently put away. And as soon as that happened, then we have Matthew 27 and graves being opened. All right, that's a little more than a sidetrack that I was sure I was going to get into. Let's get back to um, the Gospel of Luke. Let's pick it up at verse 17. John the Baptist, verse 17 through 23. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. And then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things, all the stuff that the Lord was doing. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus saying, are you the coming one or do we look for somebody else? Now, who's saying this? This is the greatest man, according to Jesus, who ever lived. Um, Malachi 3, 1 is, talks about the voice calling in the wilderness. And yet, he is in doubt. When the man had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, are you the coming one? Or should we be looking for somebody else? And that very hour he cured many people of their infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits. And to many who were blind he gave sight. And then Jesus answered and said to them, now again, this to me is one of the most mind-boggling verses in the Bible because of who we're talking about. And in one sense, it's really encouraging to me because there are days when you're going through things and you're going to doubt. Good place for it, amen. Oh, nobody besides me, amen. <laughs> and uh, the fact that John doubted, there had to be a reason for it. I mean, his whole purpose in life was to do one thing. The day that he sees Jesus, he's to point his finger and says, there he is. There is the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. Mission accomplished, they put John in jail and eventually take his head off. But now he sends this message back to doubting John, not doubting Thomas, doubting John. He says, go tell John the things that you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the leopards are cleansed, the death hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And then he throws in this little zinger. I call it a zinger. Because this is not part of Isaiah 61. And he says, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. As far as I can remember, as we teach through the Gospel of John, whenever Jesus has a one-on-one with somebody, he tells that person something that only God would know. And what he just did here is he's exposing John. And by the way, tell him that I fulfilled all of Isaiah 61, but then add this to it. Tell him, blessed is the one who's not offended because of me. He's saying, Dwight, what are you saying? That John the Baptist was offended at Jesus? That's exactly what I'm saying. And if you look down to verse um, 20, 
Uh, Look down to verse um, 33. Why would John be offended with Jesus? Well, Well, I'll start with verse 31. I'll come back and talk about 31 again. And the Lord said, to what then shall I liken the men of this generation? And what are they like? Uh, They're like children sitting in the marketplace calling to one another saying, we played the flute for you, you did not dance. We mourned for you, you did not weep. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread or drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, he's a glutton, and he's a wine-bibber. He's actually a, a, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is just justified by her children. What was John offended about? John was a guy who was out in the desert. Let's read what his nature and character and lifestyle and how it contrasted the life that the Lord lived for three years, picking up in verse 24. When the messengers of John had departed, well, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. He said, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What he's saying here is, here is a man's man. John the Baptist was afraid of no one. And he's not this little thing that when the wind blows, he's, just over here, he just over there. No, he was a man's man. He meant what he said. And um, uh, the Lord is saying, he's certainly not a reed shaken by the wind. He's solid. But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are uh, gorgeously apparel, they all live in luxury and in king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, and I say to you more than a prophet that he is that which was written, and here's, again, every time we get to a prophecy, when we go through the Bible, I'm gonna say we probably won't make it through a chapter without having prophecy being fulfilled. And I'll repeat this, and I say this all the time too. The reason people are getting away from Bible prophecy is they're simply getting away from teaching the word of God. Good place for an amen. So what does it say here? I quoted it earlier. That's Malachi 3 verse 1. It's being fulfilled. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. This was John's whole reason for being. And now he's doubting it? Well, why in the world is he doubting? Well, he's offended. His lifestyle, well, let's finish his, his, um, the Lord bragging on him here. For I say to you, among all those born of women, there's none greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets, even though we're in the New Testament. John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets. And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. So we have tax collectors. Well, they were hated by everybody. Remember Levi, Matthew, he was a tax collector. He had all his buddies over for, for dinner. And, um, but the Pharisees and the lawyers uh, rejected the counsel of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So even tax collectors were um, being uh, baptized by John. The offense... Um, the Lord, I think he's going 
sort of like just folding his hands together. He says, what in the world should I liken this generation to? They're like children sitting in a marketplace calling to one another, we played the flute for you and, and you didn't dance, we mourned for you and didn't weep. And um, I thought, I wonder what McGee has to say about these words right here. And I like the way he put it, so I'm quoting him at this time. Verses 32, this is J. Vernon McGee's interpretation. He says, in other words, they were like a bunch of spoiled brats. A lot of folks are that way. He says, I was a pastor for almost 40 years, and a great deal of that time was spent as a wet nurse burping spiritual babies, which is what these religious rulers were in Christ's day. The Lord said they were like children playing in the marketplace. One of the children says, oh, let's play wedding. The other says, no, that's too jolly. Then let's play funeral. No, I don't want to play funeral because that's too sad. Our Lord said that these perpetual children were exactly like the religious generation. And then he says, I wonder if this is an accurate picture of the average church today. Hearing, but not getting it, and not listening, no matter how it's presented. And then, of course, we go into why I think John, again, was offended. John's lifestyle was um, locust, honey, um, long hair. I, I personally believe he had the vow of a Nazarite. And if you had that vow, you couldn't cut your hair. And also, a Nazarite could not drink wine. So what, and he's uh, out in the wilderness, um, just waiting for his time to come. So what happens when the Lord shows up? He starts hanging out with people who have questionable character. Um, we're going to read about um, the woman at the well shortly. But here, the reason that I believe he was offended is the Lord was doing just the opposite. He was sitting down um, with sinners and dining with them. And I truly believe this is the thing that offended John. But I believe it's also the thing that got his attention. You're right, Lord, you know my heart. Isn't that what Peter said? Lord, you don't know me. I never, ever deny you. And Peter's basically saying, Lord, you don't know me. And the Lord is saying, Peter, I know you better than you know yourself. Before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. Never happened. Well, it happened. And then we have John 20 where the Lord confronts him three times and said, Peter, come here, do you love me? He says, Lord, you know I love you. He asked him again, he said, Peter, do you, do you love me? And I think a little bell started to go off in the back of John's head. He says, Lord, you know that I love you. And then the third time, and I'm sure John's going, yep, I'm not one here, then twice, then three times. So now he's taking me to class and he's asking me, um, do you love me? It's an interesting study in John 20, and we'll get into it in detail there, but basically the third time, it says that uh, Peter was grieved because he asked him the third time. And basically, he says, Lord, you know all things. You know, and the Greek word there is that I'm fond of you. I thought I knew me better than you did. You just proved to me that you know me better than I know me. Another good place for an amen. Because 
usually, usually people, the Lord will allow people to fail in what they consider to be their strong personal spiritual trait. Um, because you might actually think that you have something to do with it. And so whenever you have that, you're sort of taking the glory onto yourself, and the Lord says he won't share his glory with anybody. So he allows you to fall, uh, and usually in that place that you think you're strong in, just to prove that you're not as strong as you think you actually are. All right, let's take it a step farther. We go to now the woman who anoints Jesus' feet, verses 36 to 39. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. John would have never done that. And behold, a woman in a city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus was at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him, weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with fragrant oil. Now, when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself. Okay, he's not speaking out loud. He's speaking to himself. Um saying, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching her, for she is a sinner. All right, again, the Lord goes right to this guy. And um, Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So this man here, this Pharisee, his name is Simon. That's what we learn. But the question arises, who is this woman that uh, if you go down to verse 47, and we'll, we'll read it twice, but let me throw it in here. He says to this woman, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves a little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And she walked out of that place um, I think skipping, and with great joy. Uh, those who love much, love much. Well, turn to John chapter 11, where we just were, and let's just look at the first two verses. And again, ask the question, who is the woman in Luke 7? John 11, verse one says, now a certain man was sick, Lazarus, of Bethany, the town of Mary, and sister Martha. Verse two, it was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair whose brother Lazarus was sick. Who's the woman in in Luke chapter seven who's this great sinner? None other than Mary, the brother, his name was Lazarus, had a sister named Martha. So what we're looking at here is a picture that I never, when I think of Mary, when, what, what do you always think about when you think of Mary? Well, she's sitting at the Lord's feet listening to him speak, without exception, except here. Here is a pre-born again experience 
of Mary, who had a notorious reputation, and um, everybody knew it, including the Pharisees. I believe uh, she was probably a harlot or a prostitute, and it was well known. But when she found out that Jesus was in this house, nothing was gonna stop her from getting in there. And she was convicted and broken. And whenever a person is truly convicted and broken, how does it show up on them? Well, usually with great conviction, great awareness, of just how much of a sinner they are. That was certainly the case here with Martha. But object lesson for Simon, for now he knows what he was just thinking and so he confronts him and he says, Simon, come here. I have something to say to you. And he said, teacher, say it. Now verse 41. He says, well, there was a certain creditor. He had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon's no dummy. He says, well, I suppose the one who he forgave more. And he said, you have judged rightly. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon. Now, we had a Sunday study on this just just very recently. And I like that. He turned to the woman and he said to Mary, remember Mary's been behind him. She hasn't even lifted her head up yet. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. I'm going to stop here and explain a custom that if you invited during the Lord's time somebody over for supper, the very first thing that you would do, if you had a servant, you would have them sit down and they would wash your feet. That was the first thing that would be done. The second thing, to greet the person, they still do this in Israel to this day, they still do it in, in Haiti, is you get a little peck on the cheek. It's a, like a holy hug or something. But it's a kiss. And now he's talking to Simon, and he's saying, Simon, you know, when I, when I came here, Uh, You didn't give me no water to wash my feet. Um, Verse 45, you gave me no kiss. That would have been customary. But this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time she came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, which was another custom of greeting. But this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Question mark. Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. We never think of Mary the same way again. And uh, when you get to, to John 11, again, she's um, waiting on, on the Lord. Just, just one example, I just, just came to mind, it's not my notes. Pretty sure it's in um, 11. Dwight, you shouldn't do that if it's not your notes. <laughs> and I'm not seeing it. Okay, never mind. 
not my notes. We're going to go on to chapter 8, and we're going to make it through uh, the first 15 verses. Let's do the first three for starters. <clears throat> Came to pass afterwards that he went through every city and village, preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. So he's traveling with his disciples. We're going to learn something here about how they were provided for during his ministries. And certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, Suzanne, and many others, notice, provided for him from their substance. So when it talks about the disciples going around, while well, there was also an entourage of these women that were cooking, feeding, and where did it come from? Their own substance, what they had. So they, um, I don't believe the Lord had money. Um, when they asked him about taxes, he didn't have a coin to pull out of his pocket. He just said, who's got a coin here? Whose inscription is on it? He didn't have one. So wherever they went, they were provided for by these women that came out of their own, we would say, bank account today. And when a great multitude had gathered together, had come from every city, he spoke by a parable. He said, a sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside. It was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell in the rock. As soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. Some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up with it and choked it. Others fell on good ground, sprang up, yielded a crop a hundredfold. And when he had said these things, he cried, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Then the disciples asked him, saying, What in the world does this parable mean? And he said, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is given in parables that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. I had no desire to read the Bible at all, being unsaved. And... Um, I don't think until a person genuinely um, believes in the Lord that he has a desire to read the Bible. But once we've um, accepted the Lord, it now becomes the only thing that really satisfies. Good place for an amen. It's the only thing that really satisfies the soul. Man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God. And when we sit down, we talk about feeding on the scriptures, eating the word. And it brings understanding and growth. And what we're gonna find here in this parable are the conditions, it's gonna be explained to us now. It's gonna cause a little controversy, I'll guarantee that. So let's look at the interpretation. Verse 11. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. In other words, the book that you're holding in your hand tonight, it's going to be just sort of shot up like a sower. That's what they did in the olden days. They didn't have the, the, the combines and, and cedars that we have today. They just had a you know, bucket and throw it and 
sowing a seed. And whenever the word of God is presented, it's going to fall on four different types of soil. Now, the first soil here are by the ones by the wayside. And the ones who hear, then comes the devil. So we know that the bird here mentioned in the parable is none other than the devil or because he's not omniscient. He can only be in one place at one time. Where is he right now, by the way? Revelation 12 tells us that he's in heaven accusing you and me day and night before the Father. So the devil comes um, and takes away the word out of their hearts lest they should believe and be saved. So here's a person who is flipping channels. Let's go back a few years and all of a sudden there's Billy Graham. What's he doing? Now we have the capacity to, to sow seeds all over the world just by turning on a TV set. And it can, it's out there. And um, he always preaches the gospel. And it's gonna fall on a heart like this. So the first thing that I wanna point out here is the reality of spiritual warfare when you're telling somebody about Jesus Christ. I always, if I'm witnessing to somebody and they're, they are getting to the point where you can see that they just might be open to receive this, I tell them exactly what's gonna happen. That um, as soon as I leave or you leave, that's when the war is begin to begin, right here. Because the words of the gospel of Jesus Christ are being presented to you. But then, as soon as I'm gone or you're gone, now the spiritual warfare begins. It might be the first time in your life that you're even involved in spiritual warfare. Well, this person thinks it through, and um, the devil, he's got a lot of different tools in his chest that he uses. You can become one of those holy rollers. What do you think your wife is going to say? You come home and tell her you're a born-again Christian. What are the guys at a job say? Good to think. Are you become one of those holy rollers? And they go, I can't, I'm, I'm not up for that. that. I'm not signing up for that. And so they don't receive it, they don't believe it, and be saved. Here's a person who heard the word of God, number one, this person is not saved. Let's go to the next one. Verse 13, and the ones on the rock are those who when they hear, they receive the word with joy, and they have no root, who believe for a while, but in time of temptation, fall away. I'm going to make you think about this one a little bit. So here, we're told, this is where, you ever hear the terminology, you need to get rooted and grounded? This is where it comes from. So the seed goes on rocky ground, but it doesn't have a root system. And my question is, there's no doubt that when they heard it, they believed it, even with joy. My sins could be forgiven? That's great. And then notice that it says, uh, they receive the word with joy, and it says they believe for a while, okay? So then it says, and in time of temptation, fall away. I want to point out a couple things here. There was enough time where they actually believed, and there had to be some passage of time before they were tempted. 
You can agree with me or not with that one. But here's my question. If they believed for a time, um, were they saved during that period of time? Can I say that again? Okay. They believed. What did the Lord uh, uh, Paul say to the Philippian jailer? What, what, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you and your household will be saved. Were they saved at that time? Absolutely. So here's my question. It said, who believed for a while. My question is, were they saved during that time, before they had the temptation? I I would say absolutely they were saved if they believed the gospel with joy. And um, they were saved during that time. Why is that become such a big theological issue because it's one verse that really shocks the once saved, always saved. This is one of the biggest debates in the Bible, what I just said. Once saved, always saved. Well, how can you be saved and then unsaved? How can you be sealed and then unsealed? Well, you can ask those questions and usually the answer you'll get from um, a person who's holds to the once saved, always saved. I say, just explain this question right here. Was this person saved during this time? What if he would have died before he had the temptation? Would he have gone to heaven? I have to say yes. If the thief on the cross can can do it and and be in, and this, this person here, it really becomes a problem for those who hold to the doctrine of once saved, always saved. Now there's, volumes written on this one sentence that I just said. And whatever side of the fence you're on, um, you're gonna have to deal with what this verse says right here. The one I'm more concerned about really is the next one. The ones that fell among the thorns are those who when they heard it, go out. So they heard and they're choked with the cares and riches and pleasures of life and bring no fruit to maturity. All right, the first two. I don't believe they're saved. Uh, the one where the seed was taken out, didn't believe in was saved. The other one clearly says they fell away. So I don't believe that person is saved. This one here, I do believe is saved. Um, but they're choked with the cares, riches, and pleasures of life, and they bring no fruit to maturity. We were hearing earlier, hearing about 1 Corinthians 13, And the fruit of the Spirit is love. It has byproducts, but the fruit of the Spirit is singular. It doesn't say fruits, plural, it says fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Good place for an amen. Okay, the fruit of the Spirit is love, and yet there's no fruit being produced here. I'm at my time, but I want you to turn quickly to 1 Corinthians 3. What's going on here? This person... I believe is saved. And there's coming a time, every person here without exception, we're all gonna be before the judgment seat of Christ. And that's what this is. Let's pick it up in verse 011. No other foundation can anyone lay that that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hair, straw. Each one's work will become manifest for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will teach each, um, each one's work of what sort it is. And I believe 
the Lord is the only one that knows why you do what you do. What's your motive? And so here, the Lord will judge um, your works. If anyone's work which he has built out endures, he will receive a reward. Verse 15, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved yet as though through fire. This, I believe, go back to the parable, describes the third seed that bears no fruit. In other words, they lived their whole life for themselves. Did they believe on Jesus Christ? Yes. Were they born again? Yes. Did they do anything except live for themselves? Well, it it clearly says in 1 Corinthians 3 that there's going to be people that have absolutely no reward, none whatsoever, but it says, yet they are saved. So my point is, so far, two out of three, two are not saved. The third one is, no fruit. Let's leave it on a positive note. But the one that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart. My friends, that's all we're doing here tonight. We're sitting down and we're reading the word of God and hopefully it's getting to our heart and realizing it makes a whole lot of sense to seek first the kingdom. It makes a whole lot of sense to put my investments up there than down here. Just like, it, just like these women, like Mary that followed him around and they invested of their own substance so that the Lord could be taken care of. Um, and a word of encouragement as we go out tonight, they keep it in a bare fruit with patience. That word I looked up actually means endurance. So I would close the study by saying this. Verse 50 of chapter seven says, um, go in peace. <laughs> so go in peace. But the other thing is, realize that we're in this and it's not a hundred yard dash. This is a marathon, gang. And we gotta do it from the day we get saved until the time that the Lord calls us home at the rapture or we go home some other way. But the whole thing of enduring, not become, becoming weary and doing well. Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, I thank you once again for the, the children and um, seeing how you instructed the disciples not to send them away, but you picked one up and used them as an example of how we should be have that childlike faith simply in your word. And so we thank you for the scripture. We thank you for our study in Luke. We pray for discernment, perseverance, endurance, especially endurance, Lord, as the days get darker in these last days. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Every person here without exception, we're all gonna be before the judgment seat of Christ. And that's what this is. Let's pick it up in verse 011. No other foundation can anyone lay that that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hair, straw. Each one's work will become manifest for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will teach each, um, each one's work of what sort it is. And I believe the Lord is the only one that knows why you do what you do. What's your motive? And so here the Lord will judge um, your works If anyone's work which he has built out endures, he will receive a reward. Verse 15, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. 
but he himself will be saved yet as though through fire. This, I believe, go back to the parable, describes the third seed that bears no fruit. In other words, they lived their whole life for themselves. Did they believe on Jesus Christ? Yes. Were they born again? Yes. Did they do anything except live for themselves? Well, it clearly says in 1 Corinthians 3 that there's going to be people that have absolutely no reward, none whatsoever, but it says, yet they are saved. So my point is, so far, two out of three, two are not saved. The third one is, no fruit. Let's leave it on a positive note. But the one that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart. My friends, that's all we're doing here tonight. We're sitting down and we're reading the word of God and hopefully it's getting to our heart and realizing it makes a whole lot of sense to seek first the kingdom. It makes a whole lot of sense to put my investments up there than down here. Just like, it, just like these women, like Mary that followed him around and they invested of their own substance so that the Lord could be taken care of. Um, and a word of encouragement as we go out tonight, they keep it in a bare fruit with patience. That word I looked up actually means endurance. So I would close the study by saying this. Verse 50 of chapter seven says, um, go in peace. <laughs> so go in peace. But the other thing is, realize that we're in this and it's not a hundred yard dash. This is a marathon, gang. And we gotta do it from the day we get saved until the time that the Lord calls us home at the rapture or we go home some other way. But the whole thing of enduring, not become, becoming weary and doing well. Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, I thank you once again for the, the children and um, seeing how you instructed the disciples not to send them away, but you picked one up and used them as an example of how we should be, have that childlike faith simply in your word. And so we thank you for the scripture. We thank you for our study in Luke. We pray for discernment, perseverance, endurance, especially endurance, Lord, as the days get darker in these last days. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.